0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: And I started to realize we need to show people not just the problem, but the solution, and not just threaten people, you know, you need to take action on coronavirus or you'll suffer, but give people an opportunity to help other people in their community, for example. The darker the situation, the more people need hope. What does the change we want to see look like?
0: Hello, this is Give a Hoop. I'm Oya. I'm Joza. And I'm Mika. We are Wise Owl. Wise Owl is a consultancy firm that specializes in communication for social change. Today we're talking about communication in the time of COVID. We've experienced it firsthand. Communication is critical in a crisis. But there's something else we desperately need now, and that is hope. So we talked to Thomas Combs, a communication strategist based in Germany. He worked with orgs like Amnesty International and Transparency International. Thomas is also the founder of the organization called Hope-Based Communications.
1: My name is Thomas Coombs. I'm a human rights strategist and a communications expert. I've been working in communications for around 15 years, trying to get a lot of media coverage. And I always saw my goal is to try and raise as much awareness as possible about human rights abuses. but over the last couple of years, I had to really confront and change the way I do communication. And so Hope-based communications is based on five very simple shifts to look at actually, are you telling your own story or actually just responding to other people's story? The reason I did that was I realized that particularly in activism and in human rights, we often let other people set the narrative for us and decide what the story would be. And we were very reactive. But the problem is, the more you bust the myth, the more you reinforce it. And really what made me change was working on trying to get people to welcome and support refugees in Europe. We were struggling to fight fear by telling people about those people's suffering. And ideas would be circulating, refugees are terrorists, or we can't afford to help refugees. And the problem is, even though you're putting forward facts, you're actually still reinforcing that fear subconsciously. And so hope its communications came about as a way to actually think, what are the ideas we need to promote instead?
2: Here in the Philippines, in our long history of
1: activism,
2: when people expose, let's say, wrongdoing, is that what you mean by, by actually exposing it? You're reinforcing it in the mind
1: of people? Yes, I'm actually working with a neurobiologist and psychologist called Laura Liguri. And Laura has actually put forward the idea that if we only show the form of behavior that we're against, rather than how we actually want people to behave, subconsciously you may actually, in fact, reinforce the bad behavior. People start to accept that these abuses are just how it is, and there's nothing you can do about it. A deeper consequence could be someone you respect, like a church leader or a politician, saying something racist, for example, It starts to actually subconsciously influence you in your own behavior.
0: Reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus.
1: Why do you keep using this? Because it comes from from
0: China. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why it comes from China.
1: So, what we've been seeing over the last few years, both in the Philippines but all around the world, behavior that we thought had sort of shifted out of racist ideas and other forms of violating human rights, they've started to shift again into the mainstream. And what hope-based communications is about is we need to not just say, here's what you shouldn't do. We also need to say, here's what you should do instead. And this is where narrative and framing comes in. If you say things, people will only understand the words you say based on their own understanding or experience of the world. and events that people see will start to fit a frame of understanding. So, for example, in Gambia, where there were elections for the first time in years and the dictator didn't want to relinquish power, rather than going to the streets and starting to have violent protests, activists in Gambia started putting up a message all over the country, which was, Gambia has decided. And of course, it was on social media as a hashtag. The authorities kept trying to take down the message. They'd take down a poster, but then someone would spray paint graffiti. But the point was that became the narrative that actually Gambia has decided. So rather than, as we see in the COVID-19 context, leaders using sort of crisis as an excuse to take power, the challenge for us is to say, well, what are our ideas and how can we make our ideas really stick in the minds of our audience? So when they think of how to understand events happening around them, that actually draw on that. The next communications expert called Anath And she has a line that sums it up really well, which is, it's not about saying what's popular, it's about making popular what needs to be said.
2: If we apply that to the situation now with a coronavirus crisis, how do you make that hope based? I see it in me, I see it in my friends, they're becoming very, very anxious, because all the uncertainty, all the danger, the risk to life. How do you apply a hope-based approach to address that?
1: So there are two very important levels here. The first one, I think, is to really understand the emotions of the people we're talking to. And this is where he tries to bring brain science to bear on activism. People make decisions, both rationally and emotionally. Facts are important, but If we don't pay attention to how people are feeling, we may not actually get our message across. The immediate response to the spread of coronavirus is a great example where first the messages were, you have to wash your hands, sort of a threat message that you're at risk if you don't take these steps. And we saw in so many countries that didn't quite work. People said, well, that doesn't apply to me, I'm young, and they would still go to the park and go to the pub. And what you saw then was a shift to a different form of leadership, particularly just into Ireland in New Zealand or anglo Merkel in Germany, calling on people to actually take responsibility, that you're not just doing this for yourself, it became a message of solidarity and interdependence.
0: We're putting in measures that means that we won't be those countries, but they are extreme and I need every New Zealander to help me. We won't achieve that income of looking after everyone unless people follow the rules. And I,
1: I but there's a deeper thing at play that we as activists need to be very aware of, That. How people feel affects how they respond to seemingly very different policy messages and issues. A lot of people have been saying, oh, could the coronavirus or the COVID be a sort of Chernobyl moment that it exposes leaders, you know, have failed to actually take care of us with their decision making? So, in that Shankar she said, this could be seen as a 2008 moment, but also as a 9 11 moment. When the financial crisis happened in 2008, a lot of us thought, okay, this shows that the financial system needs to change, so surely we will finally reform it. But in 9/11, after the attack on New York, there was such fear in society that not only did it drive negative effects on human rights, that you know, government said we have to take away freedom to fight terrorism.
2: Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve.
1: It created greater fear in society that actually makes people feel less empathy. So we know this from brain science that when you trigger fear, you're triggering our fight or flight response. So basically, if we want people to care for each other and to see the world from other people's perspective, they actually need to feel safe and happy. But we may inadvertently be creating this fear in society that you know, not only makes people less likely to respond to the immediate crisis, but there's a danger that there's going to be a longer term decline in empathy for other people because this fear just remains in our society. There's a great writer called Brene Brown who, for example, calls terrorism a slow-release capsule of fear that remains in our society and makes it hard for us to trust each other. And that's when you have leaders who start to come along and try and divide us.
2: I was thinking about two possible outcomes, either because of fear and anxiety, we continue to isolate ourselves from others and just deal with our own stuff and not care about others anymore. But the other one could be we strengthen the spirit of community, of cooperation, compassion. How do you get to that point?
1: actually some of the very strong messaging that we have seen came from wuhan people in china were starting to spread a cantonese expression jiao which means don't give up and then you know people in wuhan singing from their balconies and then that spread to italy where they also have a message bene, which means everything will be all right uh... That's a similar thing that we've seen as an effective response to authoritarian populist leaders. In New Zealand, Jacinta Ardern won an election with a message that was, let's do this. You know, we can actually get these progressive changes she was promising done. Um, I think Angela Merkel had the right response during the refugee crisis in Europe. She said in German, das," which means we can get this done. And of course, you had my biggest hero of all, Barack Obama. His election campaign said, yes, we can. A creed at the core of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can.
0: Yes, we did. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you.
1: I've done a lot of audience research on how people think about human rights. People knew that bad things were happening, but what they actually need to know from us as human rights communicators is how does change happen and how can they be a part of it? So I think a very first step are those kind of Obviously, we're in a bad moment, but we need that message telling people that we can get this done. What we need to make them see is that change is actually possible.
2: We have to communicate a reassuring confidence and a positive
1: outcome of this mess that we're in. Exactly. My eureka moment came from reading a book by an academic called Catherine Sicking, Evidence for Hope, and she had this basic message that actually, When you work on human rights, you're always looking at the worst things happening in the world. So you have this feeling that, you know, we live in a terrible world, but he brought evidence to show things are actually getting much better. And that made me start shifting in how I think. And I started to realize we need to show people not just the problem, but the solution and not just threaten people, you know, you need to take action on coronavirus or you'll suffer, but give people an opportunity to help other people in their community, for example. The darker the situation, the more people need hope. What does the change we want to see look like? We need to actually show people that we can get to a better place and try and put a picture in their head. A great example of that is Martin Luther King Jr's speech, I have a dream. And not only did he not say I have a nightmare, but I have a dream in what was a very hard moment for his community. But he made this beautiful picture in which he talked about little black boys and girls walking down the street in Alabama, holding hands with little white boys and white girls. And so that's, I think, the challenge for us is, can we put that picture in people's mind about what the world will look like after we've achieved that change, if we want to see?
2: Thomas here in the Philippines, There's also anxiety over, aside from the virus itself, the government response. People feel it's important to put mistakes the government is committing in their response because that's how you call for accountability. How do you balance that?
1: I really strongly feel this desire to point out hypocrisy or failure on the part of governments. I do believe that actually the coronavirus has partly been caused by the rise of nationalism in the world, which made leaders fail to work together across borders. But what I've learned is that when we just base our communications on criticizing the opponent, basically the opponent becomes the story and we're just playing a part in their story. What I'm starting to find more effective is we need to sort of set the standard of what they should do instead. Nelson Mandela was quite good at that instead of saying all white people were to blame for apartheid he actually started to show them empathy and essentially have faith and trust in their own humanity which actually then encouraged them to live up to that standard it will forever remain an indelible blight
0: on human history that the apartheid crime ever occurred it will forever remain an accusation and a challenge to all men and women of conscience that it took as long as it has before all of us stood up to say enough is enough.
1: And I think what this moment shows, more than anything, is that actually the job of governments is also to take care of us. And what has happened here is that we were always told, oh, you can't do that because we need to save money for other things, for example, you had John Bolton, when he was charge of America's foreign policy, he cut all the funding for pandemic preparedness because he said, oh, healthcare is not a security issue. And what we need to try and do is actually reinforce the idea that the job of governments is to show empathy for people to care for each other and also push this idea of interdependence. We must obviously always call out mistakes, but I think it's about putting them in the context of what needs to happen next and have a strong call to action. For example, why don't we propose that every CEO gives their bonuses from last year into a common fund and create a global bonus for all the nurses and doctors who are on the front line?
2: Well, here it seems the citizens are showing the way. Private individuals, companies, groups who are trying to help out poor communities who are suffering because of the lockdown. So you're saying that's the one we have to highlight?
1: If you want to change the narrative you have to be the narrative. So basically the actions you take become the story. You've really put your finger on it. that saying, people are stepping up, but often our inclination is to tell the story of the inhumanity. If We think the awareness of the inhumanity will drive action, but actually it's also telling the stories of humanity that drive action. If you want your audience to behave a certain way, you actually need to show them people like them behaving that way. We need people to actually trigger this other human instinct, which is to tend and befriend. So, you know, human instinct is to work in groups. Can we make people feel a sense of agency that, you know, you're not just stuck in your house in quarantine, but you can actually do something to help people? And also make people feel a sense of belonging. We need to elevate those stories that show how we want other people to behave. And in a way, telling stories of ordinary people going out and caring for each other is the best way to actually push the government to action. For example, if we see a leader trying to grab power for themselves, using this moment as an excuse, we need to work together. Why are you taking all the power for yourself? Actually, we're all here. We can all actually face this moment together.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of two episodes about hope-based communication in the time of COVID. Stay tuned for part two. Thanks to the people who made this possible, specifically Puma Podcast, The Spark Project, and our backers. Shout out to Trisha Kino, our producer, and Mark Casillian, our sound guy. I'm Oya. I'm Josa, And I'm Mika. Give a Hoot is a
2: podcast for communicators about social change. Please listen to our future episodes... If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so.
0: And look for Wise Alph on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium. You can visit our website, wiseowl.ph, and we'd love to hear from you. Send your feedback to hoot at wiseowl.ph. Use your voice. Give a hoot. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.